Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this day that we can just gather and worship you and fellowship with one another. God, we just thank you most of all for Jesus and for the great exchange of love and grace, God, that he came down here to rescue us, Lord. Father, just be with Kevin as he brings the word today. Lord, I just pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear you and take uh, take the word with us and, and the gospel with us through this week, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, Aletheia. Thank you guys for being here. Uh, for those of you guys that have been around a while, I've gotten a lot of questions about my outfit this morning. Um, uh, I just wanted to take a second and just say, um, the elders at this church um, do a lot for you guys behind the scenes that you guys have no idea about. Um, they meet with people, they counsel peop- with people, um, they do tons of administrative work, along with, along with a lot of our servant team leaders as well. And um, they, they pray for you guys. Uh, they weep for you guys. They mourn when you guys are mourning. They rejoice when you guys are rejoicing. And so, um, anyway, I wanted to take a second because one of our elders had a birthday this past week. Derek, can we give Derek a, a round of applause? So, um, you know, Derek, Derek, Brian, and Brent all um, surrender a ton of time um, to see Jesus made fun, uh, made fun of. Heyo, right? Not even close, right? Now, and, now, and now I've spoken heresy and the elders will now fire me from my position as pastor here. No, um, they seek to make much of Jesus uh, at this church. And they want to see Jesus made much of in your own life. And so I just wanted to take a second to, to honor those guys and thank them. And, and if you're asking about my outfit, um, this is something that Derek would wear. And um, Derek always dresses well, and I don't. And so I thought today I'd give him a little present where I would try to dress up a little bit and look a little bit nicer. So um, there's the questions about my outfit. Yeah. You guys don't realize. Some of you guys are like, that's really selfish, Kevin. You dressed up. Derek actually, this is something that's actually like super important to Derek. He's told me multiple times, you look terrible up on stage. Please, please dress better. So uh, anyway, if you see that guy, give him a hug. Wish him happy birthday. He does a lot for you guys. He's been doing a lot for this church for a long time. And he loves you guys dearly. So say happy birthday to him. So. 
Galatians chapter 2, that's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be studying the book of Galatians all throughout the spring. We'll finish up sometime in May. Um, I, I've went through chapter 1 the past two weeks, and then I've got about four and a half months to do the rest of the book, so I'm pretty excited about that. Um, if you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, let me recap where we've been and what we've been doing. Um, back in chapter 1, Paul lays down the framework uh, for what his letter is going to be about, and that's this, that there is only one gospel and that gospel is the one that Paul had originally preached to the churches of Galatia. See, what had happened is that false teachers from um, the Jerusalem area, once Paul had gone out to start these churches, started moving into these new churches and teaching some things contrary to what Paul had originally taught them when he first went there and started the church. And so Paul breaks this down and he says, guys, this is simple. There is only one gospel and that gospel is the one that I preach to you. And, and, and then he even in the first couple verses breaks down what that message is and what it means. And it's, it's super simple, right? He says, this is the gospel message that I share to you. That we as human beings, all of us, are broken sinners in rebellion towards God. Hopeless and lost. Now, I, I explained two weeks ago when we were talking through that, that, that this meant that there's something at the core of you that dictates why you do the things you do. Right? I explained like, the situation with my kids and I, how I ask my kid when he disobeys or does something wrong and you ask kids that question and they say, well, I don't know. Right? Well, the correct answer is that they're sinners. Right? That their original father, Adam, all the way back, right, sinned and rebelled towards God so that the human race has been affected by that decision and that choice to rebel against God's goodness and mercy towards them ever since then. And I shared with you the, my pastor friend, Rob, who told his little boy that when he asked that question, the answer he gives is, well, it's because I have a cold black heart, Dad. Right? And some of you guys thought that was like really harsh. But theologically, it's correct. Right, that you and I are, are hopelessly right, separated from God because of our sin. And not because of the actions of our sin, because the actions of our sin really are an overflow out of what's going on internally in our heart. Right? And so we're, we walk into this, we're born into this hopeless situation, and God responds to that brokenness by sending Jesus. And what Paul says there is that Jesus takes on our rebellion and punishment, which is theologically this idea of propitiation. He takes on, right, the wrath of God that was supposed to be poured out on you and I for our rebellion. Jesus takes that on and pays that penalty, penalty and that Jesus lives a perfect life, right, what the Bible would describe as righteousness, and gives that to us, and that's this theological idea of Christ imputing his righteousness to us, or giving or crediting it to us. All this is going on in Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. And this is why it's super important to have a firm understanding of who Jesus was and what he came to do, because there is a lot going on at stake for you and I in Christ's life. And so Paul says, here's what happened, here's who you are, here is what Jesus has done. And if you understand that when we explain what has been done, that Christ takes on our punishment and gives us his righteousness, then you see clearly and plainly that the revelation of God and the gospel is that the credit 
for you and I being restored into fellowship with the creator of the universe is not contingent upon your performance or mine, but solely by the work of Jesus Christ and what he did. That there's nothing to add to that. Meanwhile, what the false teachers were doing when they moved into these churches was saying that, hey guys, yes, we agree that you need Christ, but we also think you need this on top of it. You need to become Jewish so that you can partake in the fellowship of the saints with Christ. And so then Paul shared his story, right? And we talked about that last week. He shared his story that God had saved him. And he said, here's the message here. Here's how it works, that this gospel is God's revelation, not mine. And the way we know that is every other man-made religion in the world centers around man-made performance and rules and regulations. And yet the gospel of God says, Jesus did everything for you. Respond now to him out of joyful obedience to his performance on your behalf. And so what we're going to see in chapter 2 this morning is this continuation of this biographical detail of what Paul shares about his own life. Then what we'll see in future chapters is the theological implications of what's going on in those churches and then the ethical concerns surrounding understanding the gospel. And Paul's going to continue his story this morning as we saw earlier when Caitlin was reading that this is true. Not only did God save him, but we must be unified as a church in our understanding that it is only God who saves. Right? Paul's saying it's not enough for, for us individually to, to understand the truth of the gospel, but then we need to be unified as brothers and sisters in Christ and understanding the basic components of that message and being able to share that with a lost and broken world, okay? So when Paul shares this story, and I'm not going to read the whole thing to you right now because we'll break it down kind of verse by verse here in a second, but when Caitlin was sharing that story with you, it says that, that Paul kind of goes back to Jerusalem again a second time, which is separate from the previous trip that he had mentioned in Galatians chapter 1. And he heads back into Jerusalem a second time, and when he gets there, there's a lot at stake at what's going on while he's there. Okay, and the first thing I want to do is I want to start with when in the book of Acts we can see this trip happen and what's going on. Because understanding that's going to help a lot with our biblical chron uh, chronology and understanding exactly where things are fitting into place and what's happening. Okay, and so um, if you if you got a Bible, you can kind of flip over to these places, but we're not going to spend a ton of time there. But there's four different times we see Paul show up in Jerusalem in the book of Acts. The first one is in Acts chapter 9, shortly after his conversion. He shows up in Acts, and that's where he meets Peter for the first time. He spends a couple days with him there. Um, he shares his message. And this is the visit that Paul mentions back in Galatians chapter 1, saying, I went there to meet with them after a couple years of being in Damascus and doing ministry. Okay, Then he starts off chapter 2 by saying, hey, it's been 14 years and I have not gone to Jerusalem since that time. Right? That 14 years passed in between those two visits. Now, if you go over to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 11 it mentions a brief visit that, that Paul makes to Jerusalem. And I'll come back to that one in just a second. But Acts chapter 15 tends to be the one that many people remember. 
Acts chapter 15 is this story of the the Jerusalem council coming together and, and making an official decision as the church with the church leaders on, do non-Jewish men need to be circumcised, right? You guys probably didn't know we were going to talk about circumcision this morning when you came in this morning. Get ready. Buckle up. We're going for it, right? That do non-Jewish men need to be circumcised to be entered into fellowship in the church? And so the official decision that they kind of came to was no. That adds to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't need that, right, added to this People can come to their own decision on whether that needs to be done or not. Now, the last time we'll see Paul enter into Jerusalem is Acts 21 through Acts 28, where he goes there and ends up being arrested and sent off to Rome, and then eventually he's executed for preaching the gospel. Now, in Galatians chapter 2, most people think that Paul is referring to the visit that he made in Jerusalem that Luke talks about in Acts chapter 15. They, they think like, okay, there's some similar themes there. They're talking about this idea of circumcision and whether it's important and whether it's a big deal. And so they read what happens in Galatians 2 and then they go over to Acts chapter 15. They say, okay, that, this is what's going on here. Uh, this, is, this is when Paul went back and they had this council. Now, I, I do not believe that that's what's happening here for a number of reasons. If you're familiar with the passage at all, um, the first reason I don't believe this is, is what's going on in Galatians chapter 2, Paul's very much just kind of introducing this idea, right, to the church of Galatia about this visit he had with some of the leaders in the church of Jerusalem. If the church had come to an official decision on this council, and remember he's writing in the past that this trip has already happened when he went to Jerusalem. Official decree would have already been made by the church in Jerusalem, and we wouldn't have been arguing about these false teachers entering into the church of Galatia. An official judgment would have already been passed down from the church in Jerusalem and gone out into the churches. So that's the first reason why I don't think this visit coincides. But there's two other kind of key things I want to point out. When you look at Acts 11 with me, I want you to see specifically what's going on in that story. In verse 27 it says, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of who? Barnabas and Saul. See, what, what happened was, is there was this famine that, that hit the area. And the church in Jerusalem in particular was very poor. And so the Gentile churches tended to have more money and more resources. So what they would do, to do is they would pull those resources together and try to help the church in Jerusalem, knowing that people weren't going to make it. And so what we see here is when we get back to Galatians chapter 2 then, in verse 2, right, Paul mentions why he goes down there, right? He says in verse 2, I went up, talking about Jerusalem, because of a revelation set before them. Meaning this revelation that Agabus had shared with the churches about this famine coming, right, they went up in response to that revelation that the church in Jerusalem was going to be in need because of this famine and because of the fact that the churches tend to be a little bit poor. Now on top of that, they go down to Jerusalem, right, to help the poor churches in Jerusalem. 
And remember what Caitlin said when she read the final verse when she was doing the reading earlier in verse 10? Once they've kind of talked about their issues, the things that the, the apostles charged to Peter and Barnabas is this. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Why? Because he had gone to Jerusalem to help the poor in the first place. So we see kind of these things working together. So what we have here going on is in about AD 45, there was this famine. And in about AD 45, we see Paul heading down to Jerusalem to help with this particular famine that's going on there. So, so Paul goes to Jerusalem because of this revelation to help the poor. But there's also a second reason that he mentions there. Right, look at verse 2 with me. Let's look at these first two verses and start breaking some of this down so we can understand our text this morning. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. All right, so, so a lot of people read that, and, and to be honest, this is actually my first instinct when I read those verses as well. You read verse 2, and you see him say, I went down in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. And here's what we assume. We assume that Paul's saying, well, I had to go down to Jerusalem to make sure that my ministry had checked out, to make sure that the message that I was preaching was okay, and to make sure everything that I'd been doing up, up until this point in my church planning was what the leaders of the church of Jerusalem wanted me to do. Now here's the problem with that line of thinking and why I don't think that's correct. For, first and foremost, right, it contradicts the very language that Paul has used up until this point in the epistle. Right? He spent a lot of time in Galatians chapter 1 trying to make sure that the church of Galatia understood that when he gave them the gospel when he first went there to preach that the gospel was not from men and the message was not from men but was from who christ right from the revelation that he had received from christ on the road to damascus right and one of the things that the teachers that had moved into the church of galatia were accusing paul of was this idea of his religion being man-made or easy to believe and so they're saying, hey, the reason why you like Paul's message so much is because it's really easy to believe. But the reality is this, right, that, that Paul's not giving you enough information. He's not telling you about the part where you need to become Jewish before you can actually receive Christ's atonement. And Paul's saying, look, guys, if, if, my, if my religion were man-made... It would actually do what every other religion does, which is bind you up with rules and regulations and things you need to do. Instead, right, I preach to you Christ and Christ crucified as the only way to be reconciled to God. And that's the direct revelation that was given to me by Jesus Christ himself. Okay, and so Paul spent the whole first chapter kind of saying like, saying and defending his message. Why then would he need to go back to Jerusalem and make sure what he was preaching was in line with what these men thought. Now, if you also look at the language of Galatians chapter 2, he uses that term, like I sat down with those that seemed influential. Right? It seems kind of harmless, but it's kind of Paul's way of saying, I talked to these guys who were important in the church. It didn't really mean that much to me, but I felt like it was important that I talked to them anyway. I didn't need their approval, but I talked to them anyway out of respect. 
They were influential. They were leading the church. I wanted to sit down and have a conversation with them, not to get their approval, but so that we could get on the same page. Because the reality of what's going on here and the language that he's using is, hey, I've been doing ministry now for 14 years. That's what he says. It was 14 years before he went back to Jerusalem. And I want to make sure that what I've been doing the last 14 years, for, for, for the last 14 years is not in vain. Not because I'm worried that my message is wrong, but that I'm worried about the fruitfulness of my ministry if Jerusalem and the new churches being planted in all over Rome are not on the same page. Right? It's kind of this idea. Paul was not concerned about the certainty of the truthfulness of his ministry, but instead with the fruitfulness of it. If the churches were not on the same page, confusion and disunity was going to enter into the church and it was going to cause a lot of problems. Right? Paul was preaching the gospel, starting churches. These Judaizers were moving in, coming along from Jerusalem back behind him and undermining his message. And so Paul, in being undermined by these religious teachers, is saying, look, theirs is a man-made gospel. Mine is not. I'm going to meet with the apostles so that we can make sure we are on the same page page preaching the same gospel which is this you need Christ and Christ alone nothing more nothing less than what Christ did for you so, and so you may be sitting there thinking like okay Kevin you've spent a lot of time talking about a minor issue of disagreement between Paul and these false teachers why is this such a big deal but if you read through what's going on in these 10 verses in Galatians chapter 2, the stakes are actually really high. They, 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 they actually still hold implications for us today some almost 2,000 years later as the church. Right? The, first one, the first one being this, unity, amongst the churches that are freshly starting all over the Roman world with the mother church back home in Jerusalem. This idea of being unified in their love for God and what he has done. And so, you know, Paul mentions two important parts of what's going on here. The first one is this. Titus comes with him and Barnabas on their trip to Jerusalem. And Titus is this Gentile, uncircumcised follower of Jesus. And if when they bring Titus with them to bring this money for the poor... The church of Jerusalem refuses to fellowship with Titus because he's uncircumcised. There's a shift in the message between the churches and their unity in Christ. Right here you have the churches outside of Judea wanting to come together and support brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. For the church in Jerusalem to then deny fellowship with one of the guys from these very churches would have caused a major rift in these churches being able to cooperate with one another to spread the gospel. Right? This idea of only Jews are offered in to fellowship with us. Tim Keller says this, that what the church was faced with on Paul's visit was this. Either the gospel is for all cultures and anyone can come to Christ or that all Christians must become Jewish. That's what's at stake simply with Titus showing up with Paul and Barnabas. Either when coming to Christ, someone must convert to Judaism first, or 
Jesus is enough. That's what's at stake here. And so either Jesus is enough to destroy cultural barriers and redeem everything to himself, or he isn't. Either Jesus is reconciling all things to himself, as we read in the New Testament from Paul, or he's not. Right? Either Jesus' work on the cross is sufficient for Peter and those in Jerusalem and Titus, or it's not. Because to remove right, and add anything else to the finished work of Christ is to, to destroy everything that he's done. And so guys, this is something for us to think through today because over the course of the last 2,000 years, the church has some skeletons in its closet, right? Um, And and I know the church has its issues, especially like um, we we tend to be moving out of this, but, you know, it wasn't much more than 20 years ago that the church in America had major splits over minor denominational issues, right? Think about all the various churches, and I'm not saying there shouldn't be many expressions of the local church in any given city, But most of those expressions were born out of small theological issues, not big ones. You know, or even worse, preference issues, right? Like, I share this story a lot. Like, I was getting married to my wife, and we got married in the the Methodist church that I grew up in, right? A building kind of similar to this one, because this was an old Methodist church. And in that, right, I walked into the church one day, and I was just wearing a hat for for my rehearsal, and I had a bunch of guys on my, in my wedding party who either were not followers of Jesus or had not been walking with him for some time. Now, by the way, not only was I wearing a hat, but I was also wearing short jean shorts and tuxedo tie t-shirts, right? right? The reason being is my wife and my mother-in-law had informed me beforehand that if I did anything to try to sabotage the beauty of the wedding day, that they would murder me. And so they said, get it all out the night of the rehearsal. And so my friends and I, we got it all out the night of the rehearsal. We looked absolutely ridiculous. And if you can find pictures from the wedding day everywhere, I think Jackie has burned or deleted off of servers in all over the world any links to the rehearsal dinner. Okay? But, but here, I look absolutely ridiculous. And I walk in there and my grandfather looks at me and says, what are you doing wearing a hat in church, boy? I'm like, what do you mean? I, I'm wearing short jean shorts that go to here. And a tuxedo tie t-shirt. That, and you're worried about my hat right now? It's like, we honor the Lord in this place. Take that hat off. And one of my friends was wearing a hat, and he had him take his hat off too. And, I, you know, of course, I'm thinking internally right now. I'm like, so, so like, when we read in, in John chapter 14, when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me or if he's wearing a ball cap. I'm like, I'm having a hard time reconciling this, Papa. What's going on here? Right? Those are the types of things that churches split over, right? Like, I would never be able to preach in many churches in America simply because I only wear a tie at funerals and weddings. That's it. So if you want to see me in a tie, get married and marry a godly man or woman and then ask me to perform your ceremony. That is it. Or die. (laughs) To which case you won't get to see me in a tie. Because you'll be dead and you'll be with Jesus and you won't care anymore, right? But there are many churches, right, that are so steeped in tradition, right, that say, oh, you know, you, you have to wear a tie. It's the only thing that's honoring to God. And if you don't do that, you're not honoring him. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, 
right? And they're steeped in these traditions, many of the same types of traditions that the Jewish church was steeped in because of years and years of following the Mosaic law and then following rabbinic tradition, right? They see all these things over and over again. And this is what they see. That everything is tied to these traditions. And Paul's saying, look, it's, it, it's, guys, this is going to break unity within the churches if we allow these minor details to creep in and be part of what we claim is chief in importance. That it will break unity amongst us. Now, now I think in large part the church has done a fairly decent job since the Reformation of being growing together and unified. Not perfect, but, but fairly decent. But guys... Right here, like a decade after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, you have a major moment in the church that could have hijacked everything and disrupted everything where the truth of the gospel gets distorted because of Jewish culture and tradition moving its way in there. Jesus did not care about Jewish tradition. He cared about people being forgiven and reconciled to his Father. That was his ministry. His ministry was not to come and make sure you and I were practicing the right traditions from the ceremonial law. He came so that your sins might be paid for and forgiven by his flesh and his blood and that you might be reconciled to the Father. He came so that the wrath of God for our sin might be satisfied fully. He came so that you and I might fellowship with the Father the way that Adam and Eve originally did and the way it was intended from the outset in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And Paul says, if we get away from this and allow these cultural traditions to dictate who we are as a church, unity amongst all the different cultures across the world who eventually hear the gospel will be destroyed. And the church will not move forward. And not only was unity at stake for the church, but if you look at verse 4, freedom in Christ was as well. Right? Look at this. Look at verses 3 through 4 with me. He says, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, and look at this, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so what? So that they might bring us into slavery. He says, the message of Christ is that you are free, and the message that these guys bring into the church is one of re-enslaving you to what the Jewish law had done for so long. And I love what he says in verse 5. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now he's writing that to Galatia, but he's writing that to you and I right now too. That Paul taking a stand at that meeting by bringing Titus and saying, this is what I preach, this is where I'm going, I don't want ministry to be in vain, we need to come together on this, because this is super important. You and I have the privilege of hearing what Christ did for us, because Paul took a stand at this meeting. Because Paul took a stand not for his own ministry, or his own glory, but for the glory of what Christ had done for us. He took a stand... That what is true of God is that he's greater than man and therefore we are not going to allow men to run back to man-made religion. We'll fight it till the end. 
That's the message that he's declaring. And so Paul is greatly concerned as he's heading to Jerusalem because unity and fruitfulness of the church down the road are at stake. That's it. The, the, the beauty of the gospel and what it's done is at stake here. And if we do not come together, says Paul, the world will notice our lack of unity and it will hurt our witness. I love the example he, he says, right? He says, unless I run the race in vain. Now, some of you guys are like me and you can't run more than 100 meters. Okay? But we also have a few people that attend this church that are on the UF track and cross-country team. And one of the things that's like fascinating to me is it doesn't matter if you have the fastest people in any leg of a race. If you are in a relay race, there is one part of that race that will dictate the outcome for every single team that's in that race, and that's the handing off of the baton. If you have the fastest people for every single leg, but you stink at passing off the baton and drop it, what happens? Race is over. You're out. You have to hold that little metal stick to win. And if you cannot pass that stick off, it's going to be a problem. Paul's using that example saying, look, I've just labored for 14 years. I was the, I was the first leg of the race. I want to pass the baton off to the next generation. If we can't pass the baton off to the next generation of people who are going to start churches and tell people about what Christ has done with them with a message that's undefiled and gives all the credit and glory to God, then I will have spent the last 14 years running in vain the same way that if you were on a relay team and you run the first lap and someone else takes that baton from you and drops it, it wastes everything you did. And that's why you see people at the Olympics crying sometimes when they drop the baton. They spend their whole life training for that moment. Think about how you would feel. You spent your entire life training for that moment so that you might win gold for yourself and for your country. And you're the fastest people there. You're doing well. And you drop the baton. How would you feel? It would be a lot to take on. That's what Paul is dealing with here. It's like, look, we've, we've spent 14 years sharing the gospel in hostile places that didn't know who God was. And people are being saved. They're responding to, to Christ. They're repenting of sin. They're trusting in Jesus for forgiveness of sin and salvation. And this is what's happening. The race can be lost because we can fail to make Christ look glorious and introduce man back into the picture. And so I want to transition to the verdict and what ended up happening at this meeting, right? And some of you guys already know what happened, but we can see here, right? On these two key issues, two things happen, right? The first one was with Titus, right? Verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So the first, first, first verdict of the church, they don't care, they invite Titus in. Hey, hey, you're welcome, bro. You don't have to take your hat off, or in his case, you don't have to be circumcised. I won't go into depth on that. You don't, you don't need to do that to be invited into fellowship with us. Come, come. Let's, let's break bread together. Let's pray together. Let's read the scriptures together. Let's worship together. In practice, right, the gospel says that you're accepted because of Christ. Come in here and have fellowship with us, bro. We're not going to add to it. We're not going to make you do anything else. 
The second verdict, I think, though, is a, a little bit more important, which is why Paul spends more time with it, because it's practical in the fact of the message that he shares and what even we're talking about some 2,000 years later. The Judaizers were saying, okay, yes, Jesus, but you also need the law of Moses. More specifically, the halakha, which is the rabbinic interpretation of the Torah. Right? And Paul was saying, nope, you need the grace of God in Christ and Christ alone. That's, that is what you need. And so these apostles who seemed influential, he says this in verses 6 to 7. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Remember what I said earlier that it seems like he doesn't really care? There's your proof. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw what I had been entrust, that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. He's saying, look, when I, when I brought my message some 14 years after doing ministry to these guys to make sure that the churches were on the same page, not only did they not add to what I had been preaching to the churches that I had started, that includes you churches in Galatia, they didn't add anything to what I told you. They said, nope, you got it. You got it exactly on. Like we sat and we walked with Jesus for, for three plus years when he was doing ministry. This is what he preached and taught us is exactly what Paul is preaching and teaching you. We're not going to add anything to it. You got it, Paul. This is exactly what you want. This is exactly what you need to be telling. Paul says, not only did they not add anything to the, my message, but they also affirmed and were excited about the new churches being started all over southern um, Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey, and in parts of Greece, and, and Damascus, and other parts of the Roman world. That they were excited and affirmed his ministry. And so this, comes, this brings us to this interesting place where, we need, where I think we need to make sure that we understand what this means for us now in 2017. Okay, because here, here's the reality. Paul is saying it's Jesus and Jesus alone, not Jesus plus the law. And the Judaizers are going to respond, well, what about the law then? What about the Mosaic law? You're trying to replace it with just the grace of God and no one will ever obey and no one will ever know what God wants or demands as obedience to him and you're just trying to do away with the law because you don't like it and you don't want to deal with it. Paul anticipates that kind of, of pushback and what's going on here. And meanwhile, while the apostles are affirming him, they've got this, this tough line to walk with what's going on. And the same thing can happen for us, right? I said that, that the, the, there tends to be, right, when we share the gospel message with people about what Christ does, two great perversions of that truth, right? We either walk in legalism, which is what the churches of Galatia were doing, where they say, okay, we must add something to this. We need to, like, yes, Jesus died for my sins. Now I need to have a quiet time. I need to do enough devotionals. I need to go to, to church enough. I need to do all these different things, right? And we add all these different things to the gospel, right? That's one of the great perversions. But the second one is licentiousness. And what I mean by that is that we, we look at the gospel and we use it as insurance, for any time to do whatever we want, when, wherever we want. And we say, oh, Jesus died for my sins, so there's no need to live a life that's honoring to God and obedient towards him. 
There's, there's no need for me to, to walk in obedience and love him. Right? G- Jesus died for me. He's the get-out-of-jail-free card in Monopoly. It, this, is, this is great. I can do whatever I want. And, and the Judaizers were saying, that's exactly what Paul's teaching. And Paul's like, whoa, 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 no, 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 that's not what I'm teaching. That is not at all what I'm teaching. As a matter of fact, I'm teaching the opposite. Go over with, with me to Romans chapter 7. I want to make sure that we understand the relationship of the law to the gospel. I love if you read that first part, if you have an ESV, right? That, that, that top heading in Romans chapter 7, what does it say? Released from the law, right? And what, and what does that mean? Look at verse 4 with me. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him, who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Paul says, the law brings about one thing, guys, death. It shows us that God has a standard and none of us meet that. And even when you know the law, which many Jews did from a very early stage in their life, what does Paul say is true of them? They still break the law. They may try to keep it, but they don't keep all of it. And sometimes even in their, in their wickedness and rebellion and their sinfulness, because of their very nature, they intentionally break the law because of their rebellion towards God and who they are. And he says, in Christ you are released from the law, having died to it in him. Meaning, meaning that idea of propitiation and imputed righteousness, that, that, Christ, that in Christ when he died to, to suffer... For, the wrath of God for our sake, that we died with him when we identify with him. And then when he's raised to new life, resurrected from the dead, that we are raised to new life, declared righteous and forgiven and not guilty by the Father, the same way that Jesus was. And that now we serve God in the spirit of obedience, not according to the law, but according to what Christ did for us. So is the law bad? No. Look at verse 7. What shall what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if, we had, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So what is Paul saying here? Some of you guys have these looks on your faces like, Kevin, what are you getting at? He's saying this. The law is not meant to be what saves you, but is meant to be what shows you and I what is wrong with us and our need for someone to rescue us. It's a, it is a tutor, as he says later in the book of Galatians. It's a teacher. It's a, a test of some sort that shows you the reality of who you are. Let me give you an example of this. Okay? Some of you guys have been around for a while and you know this story and it hits home with me. I don't talk about it a ton, but I like to share it when I can, when it, when it can be used as an example, especially with something like this. Right? At two days old, my, my second born son, Josiah, began to have seizures in the middle of the night. 
And when they're, when they're little, little babies, you, have, you really don't even have any idea what's going on, right? Like, I, I remember very vividly at 3 a.m. in the morning, which who is awake at 3 a.m. in the morning after sleeping? I know some of you students are up till then. And then you're wondering why you're tired all the time. But I wake up to feed him, and we're holding him, and he just starts kind of acting strange. And I said to Jackie, I think he's having a seizure. And, and my mother-in-law's there, and she's like, no, you know, I don't... I, you know, babies do weird things or whatever else. And I'm like, I don't, I don't have a good feeling about this, but we waited that next night. We didn't, nothing, he didn't seem super off afterwards. He kind of went back to sleep after eating. And so we're like, okay. And so the next night he has one again, I'm like, we need to go to the hospital. Th- this is not normal, right? Something like in the, in the parental instinctual radar was going off in my brain. I don't even know how to describe it, right? And so we took him into the hospital and they immediately admit him. And what do they immediately start doing? They take a spinal tap, they start running blood tests. Um, they hook him up to an EEG to monitor his brain activity. And, and then later on down the line, they would do genetic testing. And so he's, he's hooked up to this EEG and he has a seizure while he's in the hospital. And at this point, like, you know, but right before then, we'd gotten this news from the doctor saying, Kevin, you know, we think he's okay. We just think this is like a, like, you know, maybe reflux or something going on that he's just, he doesn't seem to be uh, showing the typical signs of infant seizures. And so they come back out and I'm like away with my sister downstairs getting food and I come back up and Jackie's a mess. Some strange dude that works for Shans is like, your kid just had a seizure. It's like, thanks for the, you know, the update, dude. Like, you know, that was a really kind way of telling me as I walk by your desk here. And we walk in there and Jackie's crying and the nurses trying, are trying to do things and they're trying to like get him to kind of like come to and kind of come out of it and whatever else is going on. And that's like when the reality sets in is like, there's something wrong with my kid. And I, and I, don't, I don't know what's going on. And I, I don't know how to help. Now, I'm a, like... Some of you guys know me. I'm not super emotional. I have to like go out and call his doctor and tell his doctor that he's not going to come for his couple day checkup. And that poor receptionist at Dr. Benton's office is just hearing me. Like, I don't even know how she can understand me. I'm like sobbing on the phone while talking to her. You know, and she's like, like, you know, she's like, you know, doing the best she can to try to deal with this like uncontrollably emotional guy over the phone. And I call my parents and tell them what's going on. I'm weeping and crying with them. My mom's crying on the other side of the phone. Right, saying we'll be praying for you. And like all this time, I'm like, you know, I'm in this state of like, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And we're at the hospital, right? And they're running all these tests. They're running an EEG. And what did the EEG show? What showed that he was having seizures? What did the spinal tap show? He doesn't have meningitis. Right, what did the blood test show? He doesn't have some sort of serious illness or going on. So then we, then we go down the line and we, we get genetic testing done. And what the genetic, the genetic testing was supposed to be done to show us, hey, what's, what's going on with Josiah? Like, is, is there maybe some sort of, like, genetic disorder? Maybe does he have, like, some sort of chromosomal disorder or whatever else going on? Well, we get the genetic testing back and, and everything comes back normal. And so, so we get this diagnosis from the, the neurologist. He says, you know, your son has epilepsy. We're going to have to put him on a, a medication regimen, but we, we, we don't know why. There's no reason. Now, now why am I sharing this example? The EEG, the blood test, the spinal tap, the genetic testing all served purposes to try to give us information and figure out what was going on with my son. And guess what we found out about him? He has epilepsy. That's that's what the test confirmed. Now, how foolish would it be if I sat up here and told you this morning our treatment plan was for him to be on an EEG the rest of his life? You would look at me and you'd be like, why? All that's doing is reading his brain waves. 
and the electrical waves that are going through his brain. Why would you want him hooked up to an EEG all the time? You would think I'm a fool. But if I said, well, we're going to get a spinal tap every week right, for the rest of his life to keep testing him, and you'd be like, what purpose does that serve? You've already done the spinal tap. You know what's going on. Right? You would see that as foolish because you say that test serves a purpose and it's to diagnose what's going on, nothing more. It doesn't treat. It doesn't treat the illness. And yet what happens so often for us is we look at the law, which its purpose is to diagnose one thing. You are a sinner in rebellion towards God. And then what do we do? We start trying to use the test to cure us. We say, oh, the law says that God demands I not commit adultery. Well, I committed adultery by Jesus' standards in in the Sermon on the Mount. I've lusted after another man or woman with my eyes. Then we use that test to try to then live out in some way the the perfection that all God is trying to do is show you and I, hey, you fall short of the standard that I've set before you. You are using a test to try to cure a disease. That's what's going on here. That's That's what Paul's saying. He's like, look, you're using the law, Judaizers. You're using the law to try to cure that which can only be cured by the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's foolishness. So if I walked in here with Josiah, first of all, he wouldn't leave the EEG cables on. He'd just rip them off because he's crazy. You guys think he's like some super chill kid, especially you guys that hang out in Olathea Jr. Like, oh, you know, Josiah's so sweet. Guys, I walked out this morning with him jumping on the couch, and we have a very strict no jumping on the couch policy in our house because we have tile floor. And they inevitably fall and hit their heads. And I walk out there this morning, I'm like, Josiah, bro, sit down. Do not stand on the couch. He looks at me, screams no, and begins to jump, right? That's that chill kid that you think is always good. He's not always good. If we, if we run back to the test over and over again. We don't ever allow ourselves to be treated by the one thing we need, Jesus. That that is the reality of what Paul is saying here. The law is just a diagnostic test. Paul is saying that the confirmation from the leaders in Jerusalem, stop running the test to save you, run to the cure which is Jesus. Right, so where do we go, where do we go from here? Right, where, do we, where do we go in 2017, some 2,000 years after Paul experienced all this? To quote Paul, it is all about freedom and understanding the freedom that you and I have because of what Christ did. The, the freedom we have to enjoy him and know him. Right? Tim Keller points out two ways in which Understanding what was accomplished here at this meeting in Jerusalem brings a clarity of the freedom that the gospel brings to you and I. Right? If we understand Jesus came and died for our sins and rose again so that we might be restored in fellowship to the Father, two things are true. true. One, we have cultural freedom. And here's what I mean by that. 
that man-made religion binds up its adopters and followers into rules and regulations. And what that inevitably leads to is that your, your salvation, your performance in that religion dictates who you are. And many of those things are cultural. Like I said earlier, don't wear a ball cap in church. Don't drink alcohol. You must dress up in a shirt and tie on Sunday. You have to go to church Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night. Right? Some of you guys came from that background. There's other things that are theological too, though. You must be baptized in our church a certain way. Or you must speak in tongues or you're not saved. Or you must use certain gifts of the Holy Spirit or you're not saved. All things that are added to the message of what Paul shared in the beginning of Galatians chapter 1. And if, right, we don't see Christ as being the central tenet and the sole tenet of the message of salvation, what happens is that, especially in the case of what happened here in uh, Galatians chapter 2, is that no one could follow Christ apart from becoming Jewish. And what would happen is two things would happen. One, cultural genocide would occur. Because everyone would have to convert to Jewish culture, meaning the diversity of cultures you see in America wouldn't exist to the same diversity that we see today. Because everyone would have converted underneath the halakha, which is the Jewish rabbinic tradition. And so we would have seen cultural genocide creep its way into the church. On top of that, if this continued to go, we'd have seen the destruction of future cultural creation and the destruction of the mission of new church plants. Because here's the reality. As we've planted this church in Gainesville, and you guys have come, and we're so glad and excited that you're here, there are a lot of people in this city that will never want to call Lathia their home. But there are a lot of other great gospel-centered churches in this city that might have a different method a different philosophy that might be able to reach somebody from a different background than what we're doing. And instead of being upset and trying to get everyone to do things the way we're doing, we can rejoice and be excited that as long as we're central in our core belief of who Jesus was and what he did, we can rejoice together that much is made of Christ, not organizations, not rules, not traditions, not philosophies. And when the church has gotten away from this idea in the past, which is what I think we're coming out of right now, but when the church runs to bickering over minor differences or philosophy or tradition, what you see is the church doing what it did 30 years ago, which has become fortresses that are closed off to the culture. And what happens is they protect the people inside that fortress, but no one else ever comes in and they never go out after them. And that is not how the church was called to operate. And so what the gospel does is it frees us in Christ to approach culture in three planes. We can either accept it, because whatever culture around us is doing, it can make much of God in the gospel. We say, hey, that doesn't cause me to reject the truth of what Christ has done in any way and and walk in joyful obedience to him. We can reject it. We can say whatever the culture around us is saying to do, we have to reject it because it's a slight on who God is and what he's done for us. Or as a church, we can redeem it and we can take that thing and use it in such a way, right, where we glorify God in it and enjoy it to his glory. And guys, I'm not, I'm not talking about, you know, 
written, like taking a song and changing the name of it to put some Christian lyrics in there. That's not redeeming. Right? I'm talking things that our culture does, being able to use them in such a way that makes much of Christ, right? Alcohol. Alcohol is the primary tool of destruction for many of the students on the campus at the University of Florida. The Bible doesn't expressly prohibit the use of alcohol, so here's how you can redeem it. You can use it and enjoy it in a responsible manner that makes much of God and allows you to enjoy the fact that God created that thing and yet at the same time not use it as a tool of destruction in your life. Where you flunk out of classes, get DUIs, drink and drive, anything else that might come with that. Right? That's how we can approach culture because we are free to do so in Christ. The other thing the gospel brings you and I is emotional freedom. And here's what I mean by this. If we believe in the legalism of what was going on in the churches of Galatia, you and I are put into, as Tim Keller puts it, an endless treadmill of guilt and insecurity. You're constantly trying to perform and keep up to the standard of what God has asked you to do, and you will inevitably be left wanting because you're going to fail. I can't add anything to that. You're going to be walking around noticing your own failure constantly because you're trying to use the diagnostic test that tells you you're a failure to save you. Not shocking, if I were to give Josiah an EEG over and over again, guess what it would tell me? He has seizures, but it's not going to fix them. If you use the law over and over again as your God, guess what it's going to tell you? You sin. You fall short of the glory of God. It's not going to save you. It's not going to fix you. If you rest in the gospel that says Jesus Christ came and died for your sins and gave you life in him, guilt, insecurity, washed away. Because when God sees you, he sees Christ in you, not the junk that the tests pull out. The message that Paul preaches is that you are completely accepted and saved in Christ. Therefore, you are free to obey him in thankfulness for all that he has done and walk in hopeful anticipation that his grace will cover your mistakes and empower victory and future obedience. So guys, this is important. How we approach the gospel will dictate how we fight for unity and live in the freedom that Christ purchased for us already. Three things I want to leave us with, and then we're going to take communion and sing a little bit more. Look at these last three verses with me, verses 8 to 10. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Three things. Three things that we can do in response in walking forward. The first one is this. We can do like Cephas, who is Peter, John and James did. We can look at other brothers and sisters from other churches, from other ministries, 
from other backgrounds, and upon having a conversation with them and realizing what they believe, can say, I'm excited for the gifting and calling that God has given you. Can we pray for you? And can we encourage you? We don't have to do ministry the same way as you. We don't have to have the exact same jobs or calling. But can I support you and encourage you? See, Peter, John, and James, their ministry was to stick right there in Israel and continue to reach out to Jews. But what a beautiful thing that God called Barnabas and Paul to go reach my ancestors who were up somewhere in northern Germany worshiping Bark. Or that guy with the hammer who's also an Avenger. How beautiful that God called Paul and Barnabas to go after my ancestors. And that Peter and James and John said, yes, let's make much of Christ together. You and your calling and us and ours. Could we do that? Could we look at other churches here in Gainesville and be excited for them? When we hear from a friend, someone coming to Christ because of the ministry of another church or another campus ministry here in town, could we instead of thinking, man, why, aren't that, why isn't that happening in our church? Why couldn't we instead say, hey, let's fight for that to happen in our church and be excited about what God is doing in our city and be excited about what God is doing in our state and be excited what God's doing globally. Believe it or not, as talented as you are, you cannot reach every single person across the globe. We need one another for the sake of the church and for the glory of God. Second thing, serve the poor together. Right, James says that true and undefiled religion serves the needs of the poor, widowed, and orphans. How great that Paul and Barnabas were already doing this and that the call was for them to do this together. Guys, if you have a friend in another ministry that's doing something awesome here in town, and you want to go serve with them, go do it. You don't need to come ask permission. Right? You don't need to you know, create something. Go do it with them. There's plenty of good ministries doing things. We can come alongside them and serve them together. And the last thing that he says this. Go back to verse 6. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those I say who seemed influential did this, added nothing to me. The last thing that we can do to fight for unity as a church, both inside our walls and our community and outside with the church as a whole, is make sure we become unified on the essentials of what the gospel is and what it isn't. Right? Your elders will describe it to you this way. You need to be reading your Bible to figure out what is an open-handed issue and what is a closed-handed issue and how are we going to move forward in that. Let me give you an example. Okay? Right. First, we need to kind of believe some basic things about Jesus, the things I've been talking about and what he's done and what he's set out to accomplish. But let's move to an issue that tends to be a problem for churches, baptism. Okay? Right, here's what we believe at Aletheia, right? The, the elders and myself are convinced, along with our covenant members, that the mode of baptism in the New Testament is baptism after belief by full immersion in water. That's, that's the conclusion we've come to scripturally. Okay? 
One of my best friends has probably the same background a lot of you guys have in here, Presbyterian, right? He was baptized as a little baby just like I was. I don't know if he had the little white dress that I had to wear in my Methodist church, right? No, no idea why parents do that. I say that story every time. It, it'll never stop confusing me, right? Baptized as a kid, okay? He and I fundamentally disagree on what baptism symbolizes in regards to when belief happens, okay? But he and I are on the same page with this belief in baptism. Baptism does not save. Baptism is an expression of what Christ has done and purchased for you already. So whether you grew up Presbyterian or some other background that believes in paedo-baptism, which means infant baptism, or you grew up in a tradition that says, no, I waited till after I professed faith in Christ and then was baptized by immersion fully in water. That is an open-handed issue. I can disagree with my brother and yet still fellowship with him and say, hey, this isn't, this isn't a gospel issue. But there are many churches who agree with me and the elders of this church on method and mode of how baptism is supposed to be happen, happening. They'll say it's got to be by immersion and it's got to be after a profession of faith. But they would add this caveat. They would say, and you have to be baptized to be saved. Because if you don't get baptized, right, Christ's atonement on the cross is not effective for you. Now we're in agreement on the mode. And when it happens, but I can't fellowship with them. You want to know why? Because they're adding to the work of Christ. They're saying Christ plus baptism in our church this way. They're doing the exact same thing the Judaizers are doing. And so while I might profoundly and fundamentally disagree with my Presbyterian brothers and sisters, by the way, if you're Presbyterian in here and you're like, Kevin, you're being kind of hard on me, I would love to sit down with you and tell you why I'm right and you're wrong. I have studied it out extensively. And we can come away from that conversation. And hopefully I'll have convinced you. But if not, we can hug, we can share a laugh, and we can say, how great is Jesus? That this issue, while being important, does not dictate whether you and I are saved or not, because it's only by the blood of Christ. We have to get to a place where we can understand those types of things. We have to get to a place where we can understand what is open-handed and what is close-handed and come together and say, hey, if we're not on the same team with the effectiveness of Christ's work, then we're not on the same team and we've got to push back. But if your church demands hymns with an organ and my church demands Charles with a guitar... We can both rejoice and worship God in our own modes and methods and yet rejoice and enjoy him together. Guys, I want you to think about this as, as we enter in to our time of communion and reflection this morning. If you're here and you've been a member of many, many different churches or you're a member of our covenant member of our church or another one here in town and you just happen to be here this morning visiting for some reason, let me say this first and foremost. As you take communion this morning, repent of any sins that you might need to repent of before the Lord and, and thankfully 
enjoy the fact that Jesus paid for that sin. And then move forward and ask him, Lord, is there, is there anything this morning that is in my life right now that's causing me to be disconnected or disunified with someone that I shouldn't be having disunity with? Give me the wisdom to see that. Give me the courage and the wisdom to go and apologize and reconcile that relationship. If you've got a friend in another ministry or if you've been critical of someone of something that they, you probably shouldn't be critical for them over, own up to it. Jesus died for it already. Kill your pride. You died in him already anyway. Right? Set your ego to the side and go and reconcile that relationship. There's someone you need to pray for, a ministry that you're excited about. Pray for it freely. Pray for this church, but pray for another one. There's tons of great gospel-centered churches in this city. Pray for them. Right, guys, if, if they're growing and discipling and seeing people come to Christ, guess what? That's a win for us too. Just, just because they're not here on a Sunday morning or in one of our community groups does not mean it's not a win. Right, believe it or not, this is a, a small storefront marketing campaign for the kingdom of God, not Aletheia. Right, we're here to make much of Jesus, not make much of this organization. Not make much of your campus ministry, not make much of your church back home. We're here to make much of Jesus. Pray for them. Pray for the ministries that you may know back home and that God might use them to make disciples that love Jesus. And lastly, if you're here this morning because someone invited you and you've heard a lot of talk about the church and you're wondering why we're talking about circumcision and all these different things, let me say this. If you bring one thing away from this time this morning, the person who invited you or the reason you're here this morning is because God deeply loves you. He loved you so much that even though you are in rebellion towards him because of your sin, he sent his only son to die for those sins on your behalf so that you might be forgiven and invited into fellowship with him. I pray that you would know that love, that you would lay down and accept the free offer of forgiveness and grace that God offers you in Christ. And that you can take communion this morning as an opportunity to remember what he's done for you. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm so thankful for men like Paul and Barnabas and Peter and John and James, men who because of you had the wisdom and the foresight to fight for unity in the midst of cultural differences and in the midst of theological differences. Thank you that they stood firm in wanting to make much of you, Jesus, and see that freedom live out in our lives. Lord, I pray that we would fight for that. Lord, help us as your sons and daughters to fight to make much of you and to be unified. Lord, we can disagree even within our own community here at Aletheia on methods of ministry, what type of music to play, what's the most effective way to disciple people, what does it look like for men and women to interact with one another. We can fight over all these things and yet we can be unified because of Christ. I pray that we would run to that that we would run to the cross and we would lay down our preferences, we would lay down our traditions, 
all at the foot of the cross and rest solely in the grace and mercy that you extend to us. And that we would use that to make much of you. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.